So welcome back to Curated Culture Chats with Dr. Lacey C. Robbins of Robbins Nest Consulting. As a reminder, we have been delving deep here with our special guest, Jess Sunier of FitPower MKE. And she has brought her guest on today, Tori O'Neill. This is the second in a three-part series. The first part, we were talking all about representation and why does representation matter But today, we want to delve a little bit deeper into a relatively new concept known as neurodiversity. So for those of you who may not know, I have both a master's degree and a doctorate degree in leadership, and my doctoral research was on in relationship to neuroscience. So this topic is really true to my heart today. So thank you, Jess, for bringing this and lifting this. So for those of you who may not know, but neurodiversity, for definition's sake, refers to a variation in the human brain regarding sociability, learning attention, mood, and other mental functions in a non-pathological sense. So it's a term that was coined by a sociologist, Judy Singer, and it's now becoming pretty popular. It was coined in 1998, but I feel like now is when we're starting to hear it more. And some people would even argue that there is a neurodiversity movement that's happening. And so, Jess, when you're thinking about neurodiversity, so welcome back to the table, first and foremost. And when you're thinking about neurodiversity and knocking down walls, what's some of the things that you maybe have experienced? Do you consider yourself neurodiverse? Or Tori, do you consider yourself neurodiverse? I personally do not consider myself neurodiverse. I would consider myself neurotypical. Like there's nothing that stands out to me that leans heavily in any direction. I see myself having traits of many neurodiverse actions and thoughts out there, but nothing that stops or halts or hinders how I go throughout the world. So I would consider myself more neurotypical. Tori? I will be honest, I'm new to the concept of neurodiversity and what all it entails, but I am someone who has, I guess I am neurodiverse, but I'm someone who does have I have general anxiety disorder. I do have general depression and I have compulsive thoughts. So there's part of me developing into myself was realizing how much these having these disorders have driven my actions. So I guess I do have to consider myself neurodiverse. Okay. So part of this movement really is wanting people to see like individuals such as you described yourself, Tori, folks with autism spectrum disorder, any other cognitive or neurological impairments simply as people. So I love the quote by Basquiat, the artist Basquiat, who said, I'm not a Black artist. I'm an artist who happens to be Black. And I'm almost wondering if there is opportunity to bring that same sort of mindset, that same sort of power to this movement as well. Now, Jess, I know you mentioned, you know, having FitPower MKE, you've been very intentional in creating this welcoming space, uh, really being a leader as far as the Milwaukee community is concerned, dare I say now regionally in creating this space. What are some things that you've done to ensure this is happening in your gym? The very first thing that I've been doing, and this is something that I've been diving into, I would say within the last year, because when we're talking about inclusivity, we can't ignore intersectionality, which just says that 
people have many multiple different overlapping identities. Like you're not just a woman. You are not just Black. You are not just one thing. There's a lot of overlap. And when it comes to the gym and what comes with me learning these things, I am very much in a learning and listening stage right now. There are things that I have learned a lot about. You, when it comes to neurodiversity, there's not a lot out there right now. When I've done my research, and it's been very disheartening because I don't like the idea of working nine to five for the man. Like, I'm not about that life. I have a a finite amount of time. So that is one of my top values. And a lot of the stuff that I see that's out there when you do your research, when you look at or when you talk to people who are not neurodiverse, is how can we, you need this. So this is where diversity comes in for me, where diversity in a workplace, to me, that means you're just trying to check off some boxes. Mm-hmm. I got my Black person. I got mm-hmm. my autistic person. Mm-hmm. I got my women. I got my gay person. Like I've got, it's my checkbox. Yes. And that feels very superficial to me. It feels very top layer. Yeah, well, that's what superficial means. It just feels like you just scratch some grime off the countertop and nope, I got my checklist. Uh, The research that I've seen out there is how can we make these people into a cog that we can put into the machine to make our company work? And we can say that we checked off this box too. And it's very disheartening. And I don't like that because I am very interested in how am I creating spaces where these people feel safe, where they don't have to mask where they don't have to put on a show, use that mental energy to just try to get through the world as a neurotypical person would. So as I'm learning, I'm realizing once again, we're trying to flip a script. And in order to do this, I have actually reached out to people who are more neurodiverse to come in and speak to my coaches and train my coaches and do these things. So I'm starting to branch out in that direction. So once again, you are creating safe spaces, essentially. Mm-hmm. Trying, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And continuing to be a leader in this. Have you experienced resistance in trying to do this, either from the participants themselves or other people? Not resistance. I wouldn't call it resistance. I don't think people even recognize it yet because people who are neurodiverse are so good at masking because they've had to do it their whole life. So when you say masking, describe exactly what that means. Maybe, Tori, what does that mean when someone says you're masking? I know what it means from an outside perspective, but yeah, I think, Tori, you would have a personal perspective of that. Yeah. It's funny because it, it can kind of work on two layers. You can be masking from yourself and masking from other people. Mm. I definitely mask for myself for years because, again, mental health is something that we don't really talk about in the Black community. Every things that you go through, you're just supposed to get over it. Everyone has a hard life. You'll be fine. So some of the things that I noticed I was struggling with, I equated to I simply was not strong enough to overcome it and I needed to work harder to do that. I never thought that there was a mental reason behind what was wrong with me until last year where I was forced to be in a situation where it was just me. I didn't have any of my other distractions that I normally have to help fill, to fill my head or to distract me. I had nothing but time to sit and think. And what I realized is I had years where I just packed my schedule to avoid addressing the topic. So it's a sense of denial really what that I was doing. And once I realized that something was wrong, then I kind of became that second stage of masking to my friends and family 
because I didn't want anyone to worry about me. I didn't want anyone to be concerned about me. I honestly just didn't want anyone knowing my business because I figured it was a very private thing that I could handle myself. And by inviting more people into that, that goes back to me having issues with people feeling like they have agency over my body. I felt like by inviting other people inside my head, I was allowing them to comment on the struggles that I have. And I didn't want to feel like I was being belittled because it's not something you can see. It's something I can feel. It's how I think, but no one can see it. So I didn't want them to just be like, hey, get over it. So I kept it to myself. And at this point, I'm in my 30s. I learned how to function where no one noticed before. So I just continued to do that until I was no longer able to. And the walls came crumbling down. Mm. So it sounds like Perhaps if we continue to push, 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 it's almost like that pressure cooker, right? And then boom, tick, 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 boom, one day you explode. So you said the walls came crumbling down. What happened exactly that made you make the determination that enough is enough? Well, it was twofold. So pandemic happened. You know, a lot of people, you're stuck inside. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. I was at the point where I was working 60-ish hours a week. I was training jujitsu or Muay Thai at least three to four days a week. Literally the only day that I had free was a Sundays where I cleaned and I slept. I left myself no time. And part of the things I struggle with, my main thing being anxiety, my anxiety and my compulsive thoughts is I am always thinking. And not just like about little things. I was constantly thinking about eight to nine things at, at one time. And you know that game, Six Degrees of Separation? Mm-hmm. I play that game constantly for everything, for every little thing. I'm trying to connect it to something else, to something else. And if I don't, it's this deep feeling of unsatisfaction that I simply can't live with. So it got to the point that I want to say around March when I first got furloughed and I realized that I wasn't going back around April, I sunk into a really deep depression, deep depression. Like I, I dragged a futon that was in my office downstairs. I lived in my living room for the better part of a month and a half. And I'd never hit a real low like this before. And on top of that, I was having panic attacks almost you know, two, three times a day because of the uncertainty and the aspect of like, oh my God, this thing is running around. It's going to catch everyone. And my anxiety compounded that, that my mom is immune compromised. I'm immune compromised. I had asthma. I was just thinking of all these things. And I was just, it was just making it so I couldn't do anything. And then one day my mom basically just burst down my door pulled the curtains open. She was like, okay, this is not, something's not right. And my younger sister is the one who told her, like, you need to go check on Tori because she's not, something's not right. Tori doesn't do this. And I put on a face like everything was fine. And it wasn't as easy for me to put the mask back on once I saw that what was underneath, what I saw I was burying. So once it came to the point where I can no longer deny it anymore to myself, it's like, I can't, if I can't trick myself, I can't trick other people. So I had to seek help. So that's what caused me to go to a therapist and eventually a psychiatrist. Despite my best efforts, and despite, it's still hard for me to say, it was not something I could just do on my own. It required medical intervention at that point. So how do you respond, though? Because even though this is a relatively new concept, people with ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, Down syndrome, differently abled, this has been around for a long time. So how do you respond when they're like, well, you just need to get over it? You know, it's just all in your head. Well, it is in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I tell people, 
when I try to explain, and like I said, like my mom, she's, she's from the old school. She's from Kentucky. She doesn't understand. She didn't understand to the extent when I told her that I have anxiety. Because she's like, well, I was a single mom. I have anxiety. I have depression. I have all of this. I was like, yeah, but yours, you can function. And my younger sister, she won't mind either. Me and my sister both have similar disorders, but they manifest in very, very different ways. So I was always looking at my younger sister and being like, oh, I don't have that. So clearly I'm fine. But she was always looking at me like, oh, she's not acting like me. So clearly Tori's fine. So when it got to the point, I always think as I explained it to my mother, I was talking to her. I was like, do you have any idea what my general day is like? Like just if everything is going fine, I'm having a, my good days. Do you have any idea what my good days are like? And she was like, oh, you know, they're, they're good. It's like my good days are terrible. My good days are filled with dread. My good days are good because I was able to do all of the small things that I felt like I had to do for my day to continue to be successful. I had to go to the gym and work out for three, four hours straight. I had to go and, you know, I had to not eat as much because I would think about like, oh, if I'm not eating as much, it's going to affect my performance, going to affect my body and where I go on the scale. That's not good. I had this very linear way of thinking, but it was such a long line. I had to go down this list and check it. And if I didn't, I'd have a bad day. And that's when the depression would hit in. So I would bring up occasions where my mom did see me really freak out. I was like, do you remember in college where I freaked out about my exam? It's like, oh yeah, I was blown away. It's like, yeah, I do that every day. That's just the one time I wasn't able to keep it internal. So I'm like, just think of that, but think of that constantly over and over and over again. This overwhelming feel of dread and of just being afraid to do anything because it might mess up everything else that you've accomplished, not just in that day, but for your entire life. It's an exhausting, such an exhausting, tiring process. And I was like, you know me, you know, I don't talk about things that are wrong with me. And I am telling you like, this is something that's really wrong with me. Do you think I would bring this up to you? I'd keep it to myself. I'd take it to the grave if I could. And I'm telling you, I can't do it. So just like really sit and think about Tori and think about like, why am I bringing this up now if it wasn't like a critical point in my life? For sure. So many things are going through my brain right now. Just first off, I want to say thank you for your transparency, Tori, and being able to share because I think just listening could help empower someone else to also want to share. Kudos to mama. Mama O'Neill, because she could see that something was going on. Your sister could see something was going on. And the fact that she took the time to listen. Now, these people are close to you. They're in your family. They, you know, have a relationship with you. What about, and, you know, maybe this is something you want to speak to, Jess, those people who, it's not your family. How do we create a space or how do we respond so that they can be more comfortable to express even how Tori was just sharing with us. I mean, just pulling back the curtain, literally, and sharing with us, this is what my day is like. Yeah. So this is something that it's like my next step. It's what we're starting to put into the paperwork now. And like I said previously, you have to say it out loud. When it comes to fit power, I don't have any signs. Like I don't have any signs outside my gym. Everything is word of mouth which is really nice because that means just people don't know what's there so they don't come walking in off the street to ask <laughs> me what's going on. But people, when word gets out, you're like, hey, go to Fit Power, go see Jess. You can trust Jess. And I hold that 
somebody gave that to me, that trust. And it was like, okay, so I do my best to really nurture it and hold it high and make sure that this is something that like, yes, when you come to me, you can trust me. So they approached me with, I have these things. Here is how I respond. Here is how I react. Usually very, usually, not always. And I don't expect everyone to just be like, here's my, here's my life. But if you do know that I'm listening first, and sometimes it takes me a minute to process and respond in a way that maybe I typically wouldn't respond to this. Well, I know how I would respond to this situation. This is not that situation. So the first thing is them coming to me about it. It's being said out loud putting it into, I just asked my sister, my sister helped me write my SOPs. And SOPs for people who may not know. Standard operating procedures, Mm -hmm. which I did not know until like three months ago (laughs) because it's just been me. So I'm like, what's an SOP? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Because I have people that work for me now. Right. So (laughs) I just recently asked her, I was like, in the next few months, I'm going to need help creating this language and putting it into our SOPs, into our job descriptions, into everything, because if the language is there, language is such a connecting thing for us, for us as humans. So if the language is there, then we can start to talk about it. And if you don't understand it, then we can start to put it out there. So what's going on right now is we're updating our FAQs. I'm not going to tell my group, this person has this and we need to be aware. Like, oh, that's privacy <laughs> violation. Well, yeah, right? One, that's a privacy violation. And two, oh, that's just rude. Yeah. It's cringy and it's mm-hmm. gross. So I'm putting things into my FAQs. I experienced this. May I wear headphones? May I stim? Would they, they need something for outside stimulation? Like the sensory. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. a sensory stimulation. So like, may I have these things? May I have a quiet space? May I do this? So like, I'm actually thinking right now, I have a room, which is my office, but I have a home office. What if this was just a private room? Where if you need to get started, if you need to... Maybe you don't want to warm up. You're not ready to talk quite yet. And maybe you've got your headphones. You just need a space. When the door is shut, just know it's your space. It's your time. So these are things I'm starting to think about in the gym. And that's also why I'm bringing in neurodiverse educators to talk to my coaches because I can't educate them when I am neurotypical. So I need, and for the record, for everybody out there, pay these people. Like you better pay these people exactly what they ask for, exactly what they're worth, don't ask for a discount. Don't ask for free education. It's a pet peeve of mine. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. No, that's a good <laughs> reminder for people. Yeah, just like, this is a lot of work. So I'm paying these people to come in and educate my coaches on language to use. Maybe like it gives them a platform to ask questions that they may be uncomfortable asking questions I can't answer. And it's all worth it. If one more person feels like they have a space, it was 100% worth it because these spaces aren't out there in a way where you know that you can walk into a gym for the most part and be like, this is fine. I'm fine here. Just imagine like not having any space to do that in. It would feel very secluded. It Mm -hmm. would feel very lonely, isolating. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to let people know that they don't have to feel so isolated and they can get strong at the same time and they can choose if they want to interact with people or not interact with people and people aren't going to be like, what's wrong with you? All right. Yeah. So with this new movement that's happening, one of the things you mentioned when we first started chatting today is this checkbox mentality that certain spaces have, right? 
Is there a way that we can then perhaps bring a level of accountability to spaces? Is that possible? And if so, how do we do that so that we can move away from this checkbox, check, check, check? So that's going to be hard because white people, (laughs) (laughs) that's the easiest way I know how to say that because I'm working on something with Tori. It's called the Everybody Collective. It's a new adventure we're going down. And I know that this is something, Tori doesn't know this yet because I haven't told her about this, but I know that this is something where I'm going to have to pass the torch. It is, I cannot represent what the Everybody Collective is going to try to do. Now, put a pin there. The Everybody Collective was birthed from your Everybody Pulls movement. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, it was. So Everybody Pulls was in response to trans athletes not being able to share the platform in powerlifting. And there's other organizations out there. I should plug Pull for Pride. It's a bigger one that goes on. And when I created Everybody Pulls, like I didn't know about Pull for Pride yet, but that's okay because, hey, we need more things like this. Absolutely. That's how you bring awareness, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we, our first year, we raised raised about $7,000. The very first year we did the it. The very first year. Yeah. Now let that yeah. sink in about <laughs> yeah. creating awareness. That was the first year. Yeah. With only wow. 10 participants, I think. Wow. Yeah. This year, it was supposed to be in 2020, but it was in 2021. We chose a charity within Milwaukee. We chose Black Space Milwaukee. It provides free mental health care and group therapy for the Black and Brown community within Milwaukee. And we raised... That's awesome. uh, Number two. Right. (laughs) So so you literally doubled what you did in one year's time, basically. In a pandemic. In a a pandemic. (laughs) We got to make sure we add the pandemic piece into it. In four months time. We did it in four months. Last time we had a year. I am going to be like, look, we did this in four months. (laughs) Yes. You need to toot, toot, beep, beep your own horn. (laughs) Yeah. That was a lot of work and a lot of people came forth and it was very... This is why I say that some things just need to be passed on. It was held on Juneteenth. So it was uncomfortable for me, I will say that, because I felt like I was invading something. But honestly, the Black community just kind of rallied and was like, no, this is awesome. And we're raising a lot of money. And we promoted a lot of Black businesses during the fundraiser event. And so next year, we're doing Black Space Milwaukee again. And we're shooting for 100000 So yeah, we're going for it. Because why not? We got nothing to lose. They're just getting all this money. It's good. This is good for them. So the Everybody Collective came off of that. And it's meant to provide wellness and fitness opportunities and strength opportunities and jujitsu opportunities and just all these things to marginalized communities. And I am focusing on the Black community and the trans community and the Black and trans community. Like those are the focus points because. I do feel this way if our country isn't doing enough to act on reparations, to build up the people that deserve to be built up and heard, then as a white woman who has a platform, like, I have to start it, but then I know I need to pass it. And that feels very good. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great example of using your voice and your power. Like you've identified, they may be more likely to listen because of being a white woman, right? And then also realizing too, that as you continue to move in these spaces, 
it is an opportunity to be a door opener. It's no different than if we think back to some of these protests around, for instance, George Floyd's murder. The fact that we still don't have any charges for Breonna Taylor's murder. And that just blows my mind, but Mm -hmm. I want Bunny Trail down there. (laughs) But the fact that we've seen in these protests where white women will stand and, and use their own bodies as like a shield between officers, between other individuals to protect black and brown individuals who are behind them who are also protesting, right? So one, kudos to you for even taking that on. And then really also seeing a need and listening Because I think you have to think a lot about how do I not turn it into tokenism as well. And white saviorship and all this stuff, which is, you know, they're all terms I'm very aware of. And because, again, language, when you become aware of these things, you know where to steer the ship. Yes. Yeah. That's good. And that's kind of with the neurodivergency within like a gym space. It's, you know what, maybe the first thing we need to do is I need to hire somebody to educate us as a coach. And then we can gently or introduce these words to our members who may not know. Because there's different, I have people who are in their 80s all the way down to age eight. Wow. Now, the kids, they know. They know way more than me. (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited for this next generation of kids. This next generation are savages. Oh, they don't care. They're going down. They're very welcoming (laughs) and embraceive of everyone. Yes. Mm And, you know, I think it speaks to how cultures and people continue to evolve. There is a sense of evolution that happens, right? And these are also children who grew up with kids in their class who ADHD, that full inclusion, children who may have been having Downs or autism, and they had an assistant next to them. There was no longer the pullout, right? Mm -hmm. Learning disabled, however the term that you may want to call it, they had that additional ring of support. So I'm curious then, as this continues to evolve, as neurodiversity continues to, this movement continues to make its way to the forefront, what can Joku Public, what can he or she do to also, dare I say, partner with you to bring this to the forefront? Because we're talking about gym spaces here, but gym spaces aren't the only spaces that we need to be having this conversation. I think it's very similar to being an ally. If like myself as somebody who's neurotypical, I can be a voice. I can correct other people. Either that word is outdated. That's a big one. It's usually with the older generations like it is. And that's okay. Like my brother has Crohn's, but I remember my grandpa, who's a doctor, was like, no, that's not a thing. I was like, okay, in the 60s, that was not a thing. Yes, you are correct. There wasn't a name for it yet. Right. But there are names for things now. Mm -hmm. And social media is a really good platform for that. So yeah, it's directing people to certain social media platforms. And that's where, honestly, I would direct people the most because that's where all the information is. Because people who are neurodiverse, they're using their platforms to speak. One that I did want to kind of plug was Trauma Geek. And she also has a Patreon. So I think that's on Instagram if you want to look up Trauma Geek. And just kind of type in hashtag neurodiverse and, you know, these things. And you're going to find a lot of very informative pages out there of people who are neurodiverse. They're talking about it. So, yeah, like for me, it's being an ally and stepping back when it's not my turn to talk. And really starting that self-education that Tori was mentioning in episode one, right? So, Tori, what is something that you think people should be warned about? 
if I decide, all right, I'm going to have this conversation and Tori's going to tell me everything what it means to be in this space, <laughs> like, what should they be warned about? They should be warned that that person might not want to tell you everything right then and there. We're talking about things that it really depends. For certain people, people identify with different things. So for someone like myself, I have certain factors that I very much say are identifying factors in Tori. I don't think I've ever really thought of my mental health as a defining factor to me. I have no problem speaking about it, talking about my experience in it, but it's something I'm still growing comfortable in. So I think one of the things we have to understand is just because we are ready to listen doesn't necessarily mean that people are ready to talk. So you should go into the conversation hoping, yeah, that someone wants to be open, but don't push them to divulge everything. It goes back to my other statement, like there are multiple channels in which you can learn and don't put all of your eggs in this one person to be your master teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, for example, Naomi Osaka, who's the Japanese professional tennis player. She's actually Japanese and I believe Haitian. And rank number one, all these things. And it was like, this is too much for me. I'm going to take a step back for my mental health, right? I'm thinking about Simone Biles, who same similar situation, um, not performing my best because I've got to protect my mental health, right? I'm going to take a step back. These two women were both really like, dare I say, castigated for making the decision to protect themselves. Kudos to them for not, quote, folding. But why do you think society responded that way? Either one of you. We're an individualistic pull yourself up by your bootstrap society. That's been proven in the pandemic. Also, athletes, I do think especially Black athletes or athletes of color, it's perform for me. You're not performing for me. Therefore, I'm going to get angry. So that's from a very big, broad paintbrush view. That's how I see it, Tori. It goes back to the whole thing that people feel like they have a right to public figures. They feel like because they are giving their dollar, like Jess said, it's perform for me, do for me. Don't you know I pay your salary type thing? It blows my mind because at the end of the day, their decision does not impact them in any way. Because besides every four years, how often are people really watching women's gymnastics? How often are these individuals really watching females? tennis, even though it's one of the few sports that's on par with in popularity wise with the male counterpart. I just feel like people are looking for something to blame or something that they can like pinpoint, like, look at this person being weak. I'm not weak. I would never do that. It's very easy to point the flaws out in another person in a way to kind of inflate yourself and make yourself feel better. And I feel like these are small black women. It's very easy to just like in our history shows, it's very easy to point a finger at them and just kind of continue down that same narrative. Like, look at them. They weren't strong enough to do this. Aren't they so weak? Mm, now that's really powerful because I know even Naomi Osaka, she took another like blow of heat because she represented Japan in the Olympics, uh, lighting the torch and such. And folks became upset about that. We'll find any reason. <laughs> <laughs> Literally any reason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do we start to perhaps even shift this narrative, right? Now that this is coming more to the forefront, we're bringing more awareness to it. I even think about like autism spectrum disorder. It looks so different depending on which end of the spectrum you're on. Like Asperger syndrome is definitely considered higher end, right? They're more verbal, so on and so forth. 
how do we start to really change it? What do we start to do? If someone is listening, where do they begin? From a coach's perspective, like me being a coach and also me being a business owner, I have been clear over and over again because sometimes reminders do need to happen. You're trying to build trust through your actions with what you're doing. So I ask people, what do you need? What do you need from me as a person, as your coach? What do you need from this space? What do you need that maybe isn't here that I can... And I mean, I can't snap my fingers and make things happen, but knowing that I can put some things in motion. So what do you need is always first. And there was something else on my mind. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned, which I think is really powerful, I think of it as resources, right? So you mentioned about bringing in diverse coaches. So I look at that as like resources, seeing people as resources. How can I make sure I'm bringing in the right resources? Because especially if this is new to me, I'm working on this. A business owner, I don't necessarily have to be a gym owner, but a business owner, why should I pick this person over this person? Did you use like a checklist or something to know this is the best person to bring in? No, I didn't use a checklist. I get out there and I talk to people. I know what my values are. And I try to find people, it doesn't matter where you are, it's just, I try to look for people who share my values. You don't have to match them, but I just need to know that we're on the same page because different values can also evolve the gym's values as well, which is good to grow and change and evolve is good. So when I'm looking for people, it's if I trust you, like if I trust you that you are going to care for my people the way that I care for them, then I will let you through the doors. And even if you've made a mistake, because there are people who are still learning, there are professionals out there who are still learning how to communicate effectively. I want to make sure that I at least have had a few sit-down conversations with you as a group or individually to just I mean, if nobody tells me what I'm doing wrong, how do I get to fix it? You take away my choice. So I am in a space where I can, I don't know, I can help other people just make this space bigger for others. I'm not sure how else to describe it because neurodivergence, it's not boom in your face, obvious. So it is, I don't think you have to tiptoe around anything, but there are some attitudes where it's like, we didn't do this when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that's to do this true. in my workplace. It's like, well, that's fine. Oh, that's what I was remembering. We don't get to do this in my workplace. The fitness industry trainers are, it's an abusive kind of industry because, you know, with coaching, you are using a lot of mental space to work with other people. So imagine that having to be an eight-hour day. For eight hours straight, you are interacting with people. You don't want to do that. Right. I don't want to do that. <laughs> so with that said, I just put into the job descriptions and stuff like that, I'm giving every coach six health days for the year. So it can be one every other month where you don't have to tell me why, what, when, how. You don't have to reschedule with your clients. It is built in to what they're paying and to their description of what they're doing that you can just be like, I can't come in today. I need a break and no penalization for anyone. And the client understands, okay, I still have to do the work. And I've also built in 14 paid days off for my barbell clients where it's just like, 
you need days off. You need time. We cannot keep subscribing to this hustle grind. That grind culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just kind of like, no, nah, I'm over it. So that's how I'm trying to change the space because the more mentally clear and the happier my coaches are, they can give more to my members. And then the relationship improves. And kudos to you. Like it really is seeing, and for any other business owner who's listening, you are the business owner. So you can create it however you want it to be. Change the narrative. Change the narrative. And the fact that you not only are you changing the narrative, but now you continue to set the standard for the industry because people talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They'll learn from one another. Like, this is what they do at FitPower. This is why I choose to work there versus I'm going to come and work for you at this multi-station gym or whatever. I'm also wondering about the critics. Hmm. How do you respond? And I'd love to hear from you as well, Tori. How do you respond to the critics who are saying, why would you spend all that money or why should we care? Or how do you respond to the critics? I mean, they don't pay my bills, so I really don't care anymore. (laughs) It's just like, you're not in my gym. Mm -hmm. Like the people who know the gym, it's just kind of like, you're always going to be the butt of somebody's joke or you're always going to have just people who are just like, no, you could do it this way. It's just like, if you don't understand what I'm trying. So I feel like I'm in a space where, and Tori, you might be in this space as well with the Mighty Dames, where it's just like, you've never seen this before. So you have no idea what I'm trying to do. So you got nothing to say to me. Because if you did, I would probably reach out to you. So you're just not up there with me. So I'm sorry, I'm here, you're here. And I got stuff to do. Yeah, that's that unbothered queen coming out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Somebody (laughs) told me to just put Put it on. (laughs) Put your crown on. Put your crown on. Tori, what connections have you leaned on to support you as you have gone through your mental health journey? It's crazy because everyone always tells you to get offline is one of the best things you can do for mental health. But me, it was getting more online. Despite my public appearance and how I put myself on to everyone else, I'm a very private to myself person. I love my downtime. I love my me time. But when you have compulsive thoughts and when you have anxiety, me time is not good for you. Right. Always. Because it can come very easily. So once I got back online and started sharing with people, that's really what helps me out is hearing other people kind of being in the same situation as me. And that goes back to this idea of representation. And Someone else was saying, hey, I know what you're talking about. I had to go through this, this, and this. And something as simple as explaining how they reacted to a certain medication, like I reacted. I was like, okay, so I'm not just the one weird person here. Yeah, it was really just reaching out to other people and kind of just putting out there like, hey, this is where I'm at in this stage of my life journey. This is where I'm at. These are things that I'm struggling with. These are things that kind of got a handle on, but it's Tuesday. It could be a bad day for me. And once I did that, I realized that the people who matter the most to me were not judging me as harshly as I was judging myself, weren't even, never even crossed their mind. And people who I didn't even know had such a compassion that I thought everyone was going to be a critic. And I will say all the time, I've had so many more positive experiences than negative online, which is why I'm always like, that's why I'm so online as I am now is simple as me and Jess. Like I consider Jess a good friend that I would have never known if I was not online as much as I am. And so many other connections that I was able to forge just through putting myself out there and being extremely uncomfortable with putting myself out there, but just doing it in hopes that it could lead to something better. 
Now, for those of you who are listening who want to connect with Tori, you can definitely find her information in the show notes and more about her because you may want to slide into her DMs, right? Ask her some questions, create some new connections just like Jess was able to do so. I think this is a really powerful conversation. I'm loving that we are able to create a space where we can come together and do just that, just have real talk about this. If someone wants to get involved with the Everybody Pulls or the Everybody Collective, I almost feel like the Everybody Movement I hear, right? (laughs) How could they get connected and get involved with that? Maybe there's someone who's listening who wants to support it. Sure. So for Everybody Pulls, that's the one that's kind of up right now. You can go to everybodypulls at gmail.com. You can also go to my website, www.fitpowermke.com. And under powerful people, I believe, so there's our slogan is powerful training, powerful people. Under powerful people, I believe, is where everybody pulls sits. So for right now, you can get in touch with us that way. Contact us. Just put in the header that you're talking about, everybody pulls. Honestly, I'm looking for volunteers for next year. It's going to be next fall, so it's a year out, but we're looking for volunteers. We're looking for people to participate because we had people from Indianapolis, people from Pennsylvania, and people from Vegas compete because we put up a virtual platform for anyone who wanted to compete. And yeah, we basically raise money per pound that you lift. So people, it's all done online. People can donate five cents per pound that you lift and they'll pay you like 50 bucks or whatever it's worth. But yeah, yeah, just reach out to us. And we're also Everybody Pulls MKE on Instagram. Nice. But the Everybody Collective is still in its infancy stages. So we're working on building that. But what we do have right now at Fit Power, every other Saturday, Dr. Mike Branda, he's a physical therapist. He provides free physical therapy every other weekend for a half hour. It's a consult. And just kind of doing a mechanical breakdown of what's hurting and how we can fix it and exercises. And it's free for everybody. It's not just fit power people, it's everybody. Wow. And he also does it virtually as well. He's done a few of my clients from Nebraska, New York, just kind of like, hey, do this and we'll watch via Zoom and help out. So it's free because this should be a collaborative thing for the community and you shouldn't feel like you need to... You shouldn't feel scared that you can't afford to go do something. And if you can afford it and you would like to donate, we're setting up a donation link where like, hey, I know I could do this for free, but here's 15 bucks and we provide scholarships for people to go see. Like if they need more work done, they can go out and see what's going on. Very nice. So we got a couple of ways to be able to connect with Jess and her team. (laughs) And as it continues to grow, we can... As you mentioned, definitely visit the website. We'll also make sure to add those same links into the show notes as well so that people can connect with you on IG. Really follow this Everybody Pulls, Everybody Collective, this Everybody Journey, the movement. This is the next movement that's coming down the pike here. This has once again been such a delight to be able to have this conversation, to create this space, to bring awareness. Jess, I'm going to give you the final word in this particular session of this episode of the podcast, I want you to be able to maybe speak to someone out there, speak to that business owner. If they were to start just one thing, one thing to get them going to create the space that's more welcoming to a neurodivergent employee or participant, what's one thing that you would recommend that they do? You know, I think it should be part of the interview with a client. We always ask about physical health concerns. 
I'm not sure how to word it quite yet. You could even ask like, hey, are there any neurodivergencies that you would like us to be aware of? And how can we alter our area or what do you need to create a good experience? And I think if it's part of just the conversation, like, oh, yes, of course, we just talk about this in the consultation part, then it's kind of the same thing as pronouns. There are still people who are surprised when I ask them what their pronouns are. They're like, oh, oh, yeah, she, her. If you're just like, are there any neurodivergencies that you would like me to be aware of so that I can make sure that the space is inviting to you? I think that would be a good first step. Okay, great. So again, starting the conversation. Talk about it. Talk about it. Wow. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Tori. This has been amazing. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, we are cultivating an authentic, trustworthy, and compelling narrative for us as leaders because it's so vital that we continue to have these conversations that we get a little uncomfortable because these diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations, guess what? They're important. They're not going anywhere. And this is really helping all of us to address and recognize our biases and our blind spots so that we can do something about it and so that we can continue to ignite a commitment to new ideas. I want to say thank you again for being a part of this conversation, and we will see you in our next and final episode. 